So this evening, we're going to think about royalty. We're going to think about royalty. So the question I have for you is, what comes to mind when you hear the word royalty? So is it the royal wedding from earlier this year, grand churches, expensive cars taking them, the the Royals Royces, a a crowd peppered with the, the who's who of Hollywood, the most spectacular scenes with not a penny spared. Is, is that what you think of when you hear the word royalty? Or maybe you think of, if you're of a certain generation, Mufasa, the Lion King. Majestic, but kind-hearted, wise and, and playful. Um, showing respect for all creatures. He said this um, to the... What's the name of the, the one? That, Simba. Simba. As king, you need to understand the balance and respect you need to have for all creatures. From the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. He's a king full of respect for all creatures. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of royalty. Or maybe you think of Lord Voldemort from Harry Potter. Um, Incredibly arrogant. A man after power. He's known to have said there is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. Is that what you think of when you think of the word royalty? Now, whatever image comes to mind, the passage we have before us today or this evening is a passage all about royalty. It's all about our King, Jesus, the King we serve as Christians in freshwater. This passage gives us a a snapshot of the type of King he is, while at the same time um, sort of poking us to respond. That's what this passage is all about, our King, our Royal King. So before we get into the passage, we need to get into the context of where we're up to in the Gospel of Luke. So you you might remember, I've said it every week that we've had this series, from chapter 19 in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been resolutely making his way towards Jerusalem. And last week, and for the last two weeks, he's been in Jericho, which is about 30 kilometers from Jerusalem. Here's a a picture, here's a map. So Jericho's on the right-hand side. And so he's in Jericho uh, last week which is the lowest point in the earth, by the way. And now he's got to make his way uh, to Bethany and Bethphage. You can see Bethany there, to the Mount of Olives. Now, that's that's a long way. So that's a long way by car. If you were to walk in the sandy deserts and then up the hills, that would be a long way, you know, getting to sea level and then up the hills from there. That's a long walk that Jesus had to make until he finally reached the Mount of Olives. And here's a picture of Monday, uh, the Monday Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is... uh, is the sort of highest point in Jerusalem, and it looks over the city, as you can see here. But the question is, why has he made the massive effort to get to Jerusalem? Why has he made the effort to get to Jerusalem? Well, he wouldn't be the only person walking to Jerusalem at this point in time. As the video said we watched before, um, the Passover was just about to be celebrated. And so along with Jesus and his disciples, there would have been crowds of Jews making their way to this most important, one of three most important Jewish festivals. But along with um, the crowds, Jesus said to his disciples three times, he said these sort of, uh, these words that they had no idea how to interpret or make sense of. He said these words, and the last time he said it, the third time he said it was in chapter 18, so the previous chapter. He said these words, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written By the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. 
and on the third day he will rise again. Now, for the disciples, the close disciples who would have heard this, they had no idea how to process it. Um, for them, they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate, observe the Passover, and maybe to do something even more spectacular than that. Jesus was a pretty impressive Jewish teacher. Maybe they were hoping that he would be the man who would um, upend the oppressive rule of the Romans, somehow bring about a revolution so that the Jews could be their own state again. They had no idea how to interpret his words, that he would be spat on, that he would be flogged, that he would be killed, and on the third day rise again. So that's the context. That, that sort of gets us to where we're up to in chapter 19. So we're going to sort of meander our way through the passage this evening. Like I said, getting a snapshot into our king, whilst at the same time sort of inevitably being prodded and poked into how we will respond. So from verse 28 of the passage. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now, to understand the reason for the cult, we need to turn back to Zechariah, which is a book in the Old Testament written about 400 years before Jesus lived, um, that speaks of this moment. And the video suggested it too, or showed it too. Uh, From Zechariah 9.9, it says these words, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus is arranging events so as to make it clear that he is that promised prophet, our king. He is that promised king. That's what he's doing by by arranging for the donkey's cult. I'm the king God has promised. Let's continue. Verse 33. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the cult, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the cult? They replied, the Lord needs it. Now, my guess is that Jesus would have rearranged this moment. He's been to Bethany before. Um, He he would have, I I guess, spoke to the the owners of this donkey that that when someone says to you, the Lord needs it, that's the moment. That's when I need this donkey. But more important than how he obtained the donkey is the symbolism of the donkey. Now, we know that a Roman Caesar would have entered his capital something like this. He would have been on horseback. He would have been garbed with his most expensive armour. He'd want to give the impression that he is a mighty king of battle, victorious, impenetrable, with a legion at his command. That's how a king of Rome would have entered his capital. But here we have Jesus on a hired donkey's cult. There's contrast there. There's no sort of victory sort of being spoken with that image. And the question is, does it make sense with what Jesus has sort of done so far in his life and what he's proclaimed? And I think it does. Think about it. So that Jesus, who was born in an animal shelter, because there was no room left in the inn, the same Jesus is coming in on a donkey's cult. This is no king God. So we, we believe Jesus is God come in the flesh. Coming to live amongst us. 
You'd think he might want a, a, a palace to be born in, but no, an animal shelter. And then he says of the kingdom of God later on in his ministry, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. This is an upside-down kingdom. This isn't a kingdom calling for the most successful, the most impressive people. This is a kingdom calling for those who our kingdoms like to reject. And it's the same Jesus who humbled the proud Pharisee and lifted up the tax collector with the words, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the king of a kingdom that we're just not used to. He's the king of a kingdom that's upside down. So that's why it makes sense that he's entering Jerusalem, his city, on a lowly donkey's colt. I was watching Q&A during the week. That's a boring show for all you youngies. Um, And on the show, Gillian Triggs, Gillian Triggs, a former president of the Human Rights Commission, was asked whether she thinks Scott Morrison uh, will be able to secure Australia's trust um, in the future after all that he'd done. And she responded by saying this. Well, I think each time we've had a change of prime minister, there's been a surge of hope. I think Australians are looking for a leader of integrity. But I think in each case we've found within weeks that that longing for leadership of integrity has dissipated. And she said, we've already been disappointed. I think she's true in identifying the fact that we're all looking for a leader of integrity. One whose words match their actions. And that's what we're getting here. Jesus has spoken a lot about the kingdom of God. He said a lot of things. And now he's beginning to enact being the king of that kingdom. He's putting it into practice. He's entering on a lowly donkey's cult. He's a king of a humble kingdom. He's a king of a kingdom that has as its sort of norm and, and sort of culture this, this, this loving service that he is going to show us the extremity of at the end of this week. In the, in the book of Luke. Jesus is a leader of integrity. I say it now, but uh, we're gonna, like I just said, we're going to see more and more of how that is the case in the passages to come. But let's continue. Verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and, gl- uh, and glory in the highest. Now it's sort of hard for us in, in this quiet Sunday evening with no cars at the moment to imagine this moment. This moment would have been a moment of rejoicing. There were crowds like Thousands and thousands of people lying in the streets. They were shouting, they were rejoicing, they were, they were th- probably throwing clothes and in other gospel accounts that had palm branches. This was a moment of festivity. And they, they say in verse 38, 38, as you see, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, the, the first passage that Paul read to us. And that psalm was used in ancient Israel for when a king would enter the temple. Was it a time of celebration? It would have been sung it when a king entered the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus will do in verse 45, which we're not going to look at this week. But here we have the king. 
The people knew it. But throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is more than an ordinary king. There have been hints in the Gospel so far. Jesus forgives sins on God's behalf. Only the offended party can forgive the offender. He calls the 12 apostles, just like God called the 12 tribes of Israel. He commends a centurion for having faith in himself, Jesus. Now, that would only make sense if Jesus was more than a king. He, he raises the dead. He comes to the storm. Now, um, you might believe these things are possible. I mean, it depends on your assumptions. But these actions of Jesus are all pointing to what's being made explicit in verse 44. That his entrance into Jerusalem was God's coming to her city, which is said in verse 44. And the celebrating crowds and disciples sensed this moment. They sensed that this was no ordinary king. They sensed that this was no ordinary moment. And so they rejoiced. They didn't understand what lay ahead for him, but they understood that he was someone to get excited about. That was one response to Jesus, the crowds and the disciples. But, of course, they're they're not the only ones to respond. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And so here we have the Pharisees doing it again. They put their foot in it again. It's easy for us to laugh, but this is a tragic moment. Uh, These people claimed to be the people who were most faithful to this God, but they missed the moment. They're offended that the crowds are saying that Jesus is their king because they know, or one reason they're offended, is because they know Jesus isn't their biggest fan. And when Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out, it's Jesus' way of saying that this is a significant moment. This isn't only significant for the people of Israel. This is a significant moment for all creation. It's as if he's saying, if, if you guys, if, if the crowds keep quiet, well, the rocks and all creation will shout out, testify of the significance of this moment. Now, a constant theme in the Gospel of Luke is how people respond to Jesus. Jesus is like a T intersection in the Gospel of Luke. Well, he is. He's like a T intersection. You can't just drive past a T intersection and wait. You've got to stop at a T intersection and choose which way to go, left or right. You've got to make a choice. And for uh, anyone who's been carefully reading the Gospel so far, they know that the choice they make is ultimately revealing how they're responding to their creator. Jesus is the creator coming to his creation. So how do you respond to Jesus? Is Jesus someone who, who when you hear of him and read of him and sing to him, wells up praise and thanks? Here's your hope. Here's the one you love most. Here's the one you look forward to being in the full presence of one day? Is, is that Jesus? Is, is that who Jesus is for you? Or is Jesus to you someone who gets talked about too much uh, when people do talk about him they should be quiet? 
when people you know who talk about him, you just wish they would just be quiet. How do you respond to Jesus? It's a T intersection. Verse 41 and 42. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Just as the donkey's cult gave us a unique glimpse into the type of king Jesus is, uh, this moment as well gives us a glimpse into the heart of our king. Jesus had entered the city. God returned to his city, his Zion, his beloved city. And the first thing he does when he enters that city is weep. He, he sheds tears. It seems a bit out of place. I mean, there's been rejoicing. The crowds are rejoicing of his coming. Why does he weep? And the answer is, as we'll see, Jesus knew the system. He knew that the Jewish leaders, the one who should have been most receptive to him, were hard-hearted. He knew that the Jewish people were about, well, at least in the temple, as we'll see next week, were about profit, not obedience and sacrifice. And he knew that the people, too many of the people, had, had turned to violent acts to free themselves from Roman oppression. They had not known the way of peace. Peace as a nation and peace, most importantly, with God. Jesus is the way to peace with God. And Jesus had been living and calling for them to repent and believe for his whole life. But he was rejected and he knew his future in this corrupt system. Uh, Corrupt religion is nothing new. And we certainly experience it and see it in news from month to month. And God can't stand corruption either. Verse 43 and 44. They describe the judgment of God. On the corruption. Let's read it. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here's a a portrayal of of this moment. So from AD 66, uh, the Romans had had enough of these uh, uh, Jewish. zealots attacking them. And so they put an embankment around the city of Jerusalem. And for about four years, no food could go into Jerusalem and no one could go out of Jerusalem. Then eventually, after an attack from the Jewish people in the city, um, the, the Romans said, well, that's enough. And they came in and destroyed the city. And literally for the temple, not one stone was left on another. And how does God feel about all this? Does God enjoy seeing this? Does God sort of sit up, you know, with haughty eyes and and think, oh, they deserved it? We get an insight into God in that moment of tears. He weeps. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace... Now, what's really interesting is that his shedding tears 
for those people who will in less than a week call for his death. He's literally loving his enemy here. He's putting into action what he's spoken about to his disciples for a long time now, loving your enemies. But he weeps because he hates seeing anyone reject the grace of God. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do you think that I like to see anyone die? The Sovereign Lord says, Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. This moment of Jesus' tears gives us a window into the heart of God. He would have all people hear and repent and respond to Jesus' grace. So, hearing the heart of God makes us inevitably ask or, or wonder about our own hearts. How much do you care about those who are lost? Those whose future is not one to be excited about? How do you feel about those people? Do you have a heart like Jesus's? Now, we might not go around sort of weeping constantly for those we know who are lost, but... Have you had moments in your walk where you've been sensitive to their lostness, where you've, where you've maybe shed tears or you've just had more reflective moments thinking, man, why don't they respond? Let this, this passage, this moment, hearing about Jesus' tears, prod you to keep on praying, to keep on loving, to keep on offering out the gospel to those who don't see it. This is sensitive for all of us. But this prompts us not to be indifferent or fatalistic about people's futures, but to care deeply, to not lose hope, to keep praying, to keep loving, keep speaking. So, we're nearly there. God's love extends to those who hate him, who will call for his death. And so as I mentioned at the outset, this is uh, happening during the Passover in Jerusalem. And so on the Friday night, as the people of Israel were preparing the Passover lambs, Jesus would have been with his disciples in the upper room. And he was telling them of a new Passover, a Passover that was sort of uh, centred on what was going to happen on the Friday. The Passover was the festival that remembered God's passing over the sins of Israel because of the blood on the doorposts. And this was happening during Passover. Jesus was not going to Jerusalem to observe Passover. He was going to Jerusalem to be the Passover lamb for all of us. Now, we've covered a lot of ground this evening. Jesus is the king. He's our king. We, we live for him. That's why we come together, to, to be rejuvenated every week, to live obedient lives to our king. But he's a different king. He's a king of an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom with totally different values. Second, uh, we were sort of brought into the passage to respond. How will you respond to Jesus? Is he someone who provokes rejoicing in you, or is he someone who you sort of want to just 
You just wish we'd be quiet or you just don't want to hear about it anymore. And lastly, we were confronted with this glimpse into the heart of Jesus. He's a king who cares for his people or for those who even reject him. And we were, I sort of prompted you guys to ask the question, how much do you guys care for those who don't know God's grace in Jesus? The king whose blood was shed for us, the past, he was the Passover lamb. We need to keep on praying. We need to keep on hoping. We need to keep on speaking of this one who gave his life for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we... We are so uh, thankful that you have come in Christ, in your Son, to set us free from sin. That you have given us a King who loves us more than we love ourselves. Who was humble and who served us and who gave up his life for us. We thank you for this glimpse into your own love, your own heart, seen in the Son. One who, who weeps for the lost. Please help us love those around us so much as to care about their lostness and their future. Uh, through Jesus we pray. Amen.